I've been a little slow to catch up to new technology from time to time. You know, I held on to my cassette tapes after everyone else was listening to CDs, and by the time I switched to CDs, uh, the kids were listening to MP3s instead. And so I'm, I, used, I tend to run a little bit behind. But I've, I've figured out what Google can do for me pretty early, and I love Google. I just, Gene and I have learned that we don't have to put up with not knowing anything. Um, if there's something we want to know, we just we just find out, and we find out. We we'll stop what we're doing, and we just go find out. It's a, uh, it, it, it it's it's kind of cool. And I was glad to have it last night because I about I almost made an embarrassing mistake. Well, I didn't go too far with this, but I I, I didn't know the answer. I was going to ask a quiz, and I didn't know the answer myself. And I guess I could have saved myself from embarrassment if I wasn't telling the story. But but since I'm telling it, I guess the, the secret's out. I was thinking that the, the passage in Esther reminded me of the phrase, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And I remember thinking, I was thinking last night, yeah, I wonder who said that. And so I thought my first guess was Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare said it. And so I thought, well, I better look it up, though, not just guess, because then if I'll be wrong, it'll be embarrassing. Or maybe Ben Franklin said it. It's the kind of thing Ben Franklin might have said. Or maybe even Abe Lincoln. Well, I was surprised and a little bit embarrassed when I found out it was Jesus. <laughs> it's an... It's an it's in Matthew 26, 52, and I guess some of those other guys might have said it too, but Jesus said it first, and I thought, I should have known that already, but I, but I didn't. But now I do, and, and so when you see Haman dying by the sword, because he lived by the sword today, you know, we, we can know that Jesus, this is an eternal principle, it's sowing and reaping, what goes around comes around, any way you want to say it. This is one of those timeless, eternal truths, and the story of Esther drives it home in an unmistakable way, but our own lives bear it out. Our history bears it out. Our literature bears it out. Um, I think about living by the sword and dying by the sword. Uh, maybe you've heard this phrase. In the ancient Roman Empire, there were a group of emperors called the barracks emperors, and there were about 10 or 15 of them in a row that all came to the throne the same way, uh, assassination. And you can probably figure out they all left the throne the same way, assassination. Right? Uh, they, and they were called barracks emperors because they were military men. And so, I mean, their lives bore this out. They would assassinate somebody, take the throne, and a couple years later, someone would assassinate them, and the throne would pass on. Or maybe you like the gangster movies. Uh, I'm not a big, uh, I, I haven't uh, watched Sopranos. I've read about it some. But I watched all three Godfather movies. And what happens to the killers there? They get whacked. Um, you. you you live by, by violence, you die by violence. And I was thinking about this yesterday, I was wondering, does this just apply to killing? Because I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I don't think there are a lot of killers in the room. Um, or does it apply to other sins as well, or other behaviors as well? And I, I think it does. I think, I think if I like to gossip, that I'm pretty well guaranteed at some point to be a victim of gossip. I have a story that's kind of personal about my family. As I was thinking about this, I thought about one that came home to me. Several years ago, my dad made some choices. I just didn't really think were all that cool. And uh, there was the temptation to not honor my dad in the way the Bible says you should honor your father. Um, and, I, and I've learned, I had some good teachers back then, I've learned that that command to honor your parents is not conditional based on their behavior, or else who could bear up under that kind of scrutiny? If your parents had to do it all right in order to earn the honor that the Bible commands, then you know, none of us would be honoring them. We, there's no loophole. Nor is there an expiration date. It's not like when I reach a certain age, then dishonor is okay. It, that's not true. 
And, and the teaching I received back then that was very helpful to me, brought this home to me in a very practical way. Someone convinced me that the way I teach my kids to respond to my dad, you picture this, I'm an adult, I've got kids at home, and I'm responding to my parents, I'm, I'm modeling for them, I'm setting an example. And what kind of treatment can I expect from my grandchildren and my adult children when they reach that age? And the answer is no better. And so I'm, I'm not only obeying scripture or not, but I'm also setting an example, you know, showing my own children a default setting for how to respond to me when they become adults, when they have children of their own. And so I, I, I was grateful to get that teaching because it spared me. It spared me some pain. It spared, you know, you know, all sinful choices have consequences. It spared me some of those. But then I was especially grateful, or I've been especially grateful since my dad died. You know, that was just a couple years ago. And I've heard some horrible stories about people who struggle when, when they lose their parents. And I'm not telling you not to be sad. It's a sad thing when you lose your parents. I miss them as well. But there was nothing between us at the end. There was no, there wasn't nothing unsaid or things I said that I wished I hadn't that I could have taken back. There wasn't any kind of bitterness or acrimony. Um, you know, I was, I grieved for him in the appropriate way. But there wasn't this, this, this horrible series of recriminations that, some, that you sometimes see. And I think a lot of our health problems when you get to be my age or older come from not working out those parent issues at, at an appropriate time. So this is one. I don't see you out there sowing destruction and mayhem and murder and reaping destruction and mayhem and murder. But, but, but churches are a place where, where, where some more socially acceptable sins kind of flow freely. And we're going, to, we're going to reap those harvests if we're not careful. Dishonor is one of those that, that I, see, I, I see fairly commonly practiced. It's, it's very socially acceptable to mock, make fun of your parents, isn't it? Uh, it's, a, I mean, it's what a lot of TV sitcoms are all about, right? And, uh, it's, um, and gossip is so socially acceptable, it's hardly recognizable for what it is. Um, and so it's real easy to kind of fall into that trap unless it comes back to you, and then it hurts. <laughs> and then you're, oh, that's gossip. I know. I recognize it now. So anyway, I think that, that this message in Esther has practical application for, for today and for our lives, even if you're not plotting murder. And, and, and so let's get back to Esther and take a look. Got a few visitors today, so I, I'm, I'm still going to have to rush through the review, but I just want to tell you, if I go too fast on the review, um, we've got podcasts now. Thank you, Samantha. And you know I Googled the church last night uh, just to see what I would get, and your podcast came up. I just think that is so awesome. I, you know, for years, if you Google Melbourne Community Church, for the last few years, you would get uh, a church in Australia. Uh, and if you Google MCC, Melbourne, you'll get Metropolitan Community Church in Australia, which is a, a, a gay church um, in Australia. And uh, so it's uh, one of the reasons we didn't use MCC in our, uh, uh, in our um, web address. It's reflectingchrist.org. But uh, anyway, I'm off the subject. Back to, back to Esther. So if you want to learn more about Esther, we're on the, we've got two more weeks of Esther after this. We're almost to the end of the book. Uh, just feel free. We've got CDs and we've got podcasts. But in its biblical contest, this is after the exile and after the return. The first group of Israelites, a small group, have come back to Jerusalem, but the majority decided to remain wherever they'd been taken. Uh, mostly in the Persian Empire, and this, is, this occurs in the Persian community. 
Ancient Persia is famous in world history for a couple of things, and some of those show up in Esther in a big way. They're good at getting the news out. They've got a well-developed bureaucracy. If the king makes a decree, he can't just snap his fingers and undo it. He's got to obey his own laws, which is kind of, kind of unique and somewhat advanced in, ancient, in the ancient Near East. So far in Esther, we've seen a lot of action and learned a lot of characters, and chapter five that we covered last week sort of set up the climactic events in Esther, and that's today. Uh, so if this is your first time, you came at the right time, the action's gonna, um, uh, gonna really reach its height uh, in chapter six and chapter seven, and we're gonna read both of those today quite quickly. Um, yesterday, chapter five, Esther set up a banquet. She had a banquet, and even though two times King Xerxes said, what, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. Uh, she says, I really just want you to come to another banquet tomorrow. So she kind of sets the stage. I don't know her reasons for putting it off, but it sure makes a better story because some stuff happened overnight that makes the story better. And then Haman is also doing some planning He's fed up with Mordecai's dishonor. Haman's the number two in the kingdom. Mordecai's the Jewish guy who won't bow down to him. And he decides he's carrying forward with his plans to kill all the Jews in 11 months, but he can't wait to kill Mordecai. He has a gallows, an absurdly tall gallows erected. And he says, I'm going to get this, I'm going to see if I can get the king's permission to execute this guy right away. And so that's, that's where we are in chapter six. Let's go ahead and start reading. Verse one, that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Theresh, Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You know, does God speak to us through dreams? Uh, in the Bible, he does a lot. No reason to believe he doesn't today still. Um, but here it's kind of interesting. God brings information or accomplishes his purposes not through dreams but through an inability to sleep. The king can't sleep and so what's he going to do? Seems like a bizarre series of coincidences if you believe in coincidences or it could be God's providence uh, which is what I believe. So very practically um, I don't know how many of you read yourselves to sleep but uh, it works. Um, it sure works for me. Um, I have no trouble getting to sleep. Read a couple pages of the novel I'm working on and I'm ready. Um, if I were reading the, the record of the chronicles of the kings of Persia, I think I'd go to sleep even faster. This sounds like a really boring thing to read. And, and so the kings of Persia had good records. The book of Ezra tells us that. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus confirms that. They had lots to read of. And what a nice surprise. The record they happened to read is the record of when Mordecai was the hero. Now, this was a couple, few chapters ago. Mordecai exposed this assassination plot, told Esther, Esther told the king, they killed the two guys, the king did not get assassinated. So Mordecai is a hero, except nobody really seemed to notice it then. He didn't get any good reward, and so now the king decides, it's time to reward this guy. Verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. So the oversight's going to turn into opportunity. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Now this is a, just a funny scene to me. Mord uh, Haman's coming in, it's like, I've had it with this Mordecai, I'm going to get the king's permission to kill him. And the king's been up, up reading the, uh, the record and says, you know, we never really blessed Mordecai for what he did. I'm going to need to figure out a way to honor him. 
And so we got the king and his number two at cross purposes where Mordecai is concerned. Now, these unusual circumstances, I think, point to God's intervention. Is this a coincidence or is it God's providence? Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. Of all the chronicles of his reign so far, this, Esther takes place over several years. The, the account they read happens to be the one where Mordecai is the hero. And then Haman arrives just as Xerxes is considering Mordecai's reward. Because of all these what seem like coincidences, some scholars of the Bible, uh, literary scholars, even biblical scholars, have offered the theory that Esther is a work of historical fiction. Um, first all, I'm going to say, just to make it clear, I don't believe that. Um, and I'll explain why. Is it, is it impossible? Would it mess with your theology if you thought that there were works of fiction embedded in Scripture? Well, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't bother me. That happens some. When Jesus tells a parable, is he telling a story or is he telling a history? I think he was telling a story there. I think the context, the genre makes it plain that, that when Jesus is telling a parable that, that maybe that thing happened, it could have happened, but, but, but I'm not sure he's saying this happened. But the genre of Esther is clearly historical. Just like all the other history books that you find in this time, it happened during the reign of this king, this year of the reign of this king. The people and places named in it are real people, real places. Some of the people are confirmed by extra-biblical sources. The places for sure are the palace at Susa, uh, where the Persians had their winter palace. You can read about that in all different historical ref uh, records outside the Bible. This Esther's a history book, and a history book in the Bible is a book I think I can rely on, and I, b I believe I can. I don't think this is a work of fiction. Let's carry on. Verse 5. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Now, I, I just, I love this story because it's so funny. Uh, dramatic irony, the definition of that is when the readers or the audience know something that the characters don't know. And it creates, it's a, it's a rich source of humor in movies today, in, in, in literature throughout history. And, and it's what, what makes this one of the funniest stories in the Bible. So Haman's thinking, the king wants to honor somebody, it's probably going to be me. And so when he answers, he's thinking of a prize that he would like to get. And of course, <laughs> the king wants to honor Mordecai, but he hasn't named him yet, who Haman would rather kill. Verse 7, so he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and, and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So what's Haman's idea for how to honor the guy? Give him the king's robe, the king's horse, a noble escort, a little two-man parade, and a proclamation. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, you've heard me say there are several recurring themes that we see over and over again in Esther. This takes us back to one of the, the themes I've noticed, and that is questionable advice. Now, if you ever decide you want to honor me, a parade is not what I want. Uh, that's not, I, that seems like kind of a lame prize. Uh, it's not going to change Mordecai's status. It's not going to give him 
it's not a promotion, it's not wealth, it's none of the things that would seem like would be lasting. But remember, when Haman answers, he thinks he's answering about himself. And Haman's already got position. He's the number two man in the kingdom. Xerxes isn't going to promote him to number one. He's already got wealth. He's got a tremendous amount of wealth. He offered a gazillion dollars to whatever that was to, to back up his plan to exterminate the Jews. So he's got position. He's got money. What's he like? He lacks respect. He lacks the honor that he craves so desperately. And so his answer is tailored to his particular needs. We're going to see Mordecai gets the parade and then goes right back to work. It's like it doesn't really do much for Mordecai. Verse 10, king likes the idea. Another recurring theme is the king responding to questionable advice with a, okay, let's do it. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested, and here's the first time he's named, for Mordecai the Jew. Now, I just love to picture what Haman's face looked like <laughs> when he heard this news. Who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you've recommended. The, the writer of Esther wanted to make it real plain that Mordecai was Jewish, and so he's at, at you know, the front and center of this, this group of people that's been condemned to death by Haman's sort of underhanded plotting. He's named Mordecai the Jew five times in the book of Esther, so, so it becomes sort of not just his nickname, but his name. Verse 11, so Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, the Bible doesn't go into detail about how Haman did this job, but I just like to picture the look on his face as he's leading the horse. You know, Haman has to do it himself because he's the noble prince. He's, you know, who else but him? He's number two. Um, giving to Mordecai the Jew, his arch nemesis, the prize that he hoped to get for himself. That, that just seems very funny to me. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, business as usual for him, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. So, Mordecai earlier had grieved for Israel. Here, Haman's grieving for himself because he feels like he's been humiliated. And remember who told Mordecai to, to, to build the gallows? It was his wife and his advisors. Now he goes home crying to them, and they're no help at all. Verse 13, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Um, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So what's this mean, you will surely come to ruin? Why would his wife tell him that? I, I could think of two reasons. One is the Persians were very superstitious. And so she might have been saying, very bad omen, you know, that what happened today, this means you're on a downhill slide. Or it could be that she knew about the ancient curse that God Jehovah God had placed on the Amalekites. Remember, Haman was from the tribe of Agag, who was an Amalekite king. Remember 1 Samuel 15, 2? We read this a couple weeks ago. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. I don't know if Zerash, Haman's wife, knew about that or if she was just saying it's a bad omen. But either way, she's right. It's bad for Haman, and it's going to get worse. Um, the servants came to get him for the banquet. That seems kind of weird to me. Uh, normally, you know, I would invite somebody and just expect them to show up, but uh, this was a custom in the ancient Near East, and you can read about this in the, in the Bible, too. In the, um, in the New Testament, Jesus tells some parables that involve servants going to get guests for a banquet and bring them back. 
So the king sends servants to get Haman and bring him to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now that's the end of chapter 6, and now we're going to read chapter 7. It's even shorter. Haman thought he was having a bad day already, but it's going to get much worse. Verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. It's the third time he's used that phrase. Here's another theme you see a lot in Esther. Lots of banquets, lots of eating going on. Two banquets by King Xerxes in chapter 1. Uh, queen Vashti, the former queen, gave a banquet in chapter 1. And now here in the last two chapters, we've seen two different banquets by Esther. And here's her answer, verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. When she says sold for destruction, I think she's referring to the bribe, the money that, that Haman put down in order to sponsor uh, annihilating the Jews. But I wonder at this point, how much does Haman know? Does Haman know about Mordecai and Esther being connected? The, the, the Bible's silent on that. Does, Hes, does, does Haman know that Esther's a Jew? I'm not sure. I know Xerxes doesn't know. In fact, Xerxes doesn't know a lot. Remember when Haman told, I mean, about this thing. Remember when, when Haman kind of hatched his plot against the Jews? He went to Xerxes and said, these certain people are threatening the empire. He never names them as Jewish people. He says, these certain people, they just need to go down. And Xerxes is like, okay. Um, he gives them the right to, to wipe out a whole race of people without even knowing who they are. So Xerxes doesn't know that the certain people Haman was talking about are Jews. He doesn't know that Haman's charges are false. For all Xerxes knows, these are terrorists, got to go. But uh, Haman just trumps up the charges because he doesn't like Mordecai. And he also does not know that his own wife, the queen, is Jewish. And that when he, when he said okay, he pretty much signed her death warrant too. But now he's going to find out. This is the climactic scene in the, whole, in the whole book of Esther. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And it's a sincere question. He really doesn't know. Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. Rage is another one of those recurring themes. We see a lot of people angry uh, in Esther. King Xerxes was mad at his first wife, Vashti, the queen in chapter 1. Haman is mad at Mordecai a couple times because he doesn't get enough honor. And then now King Xerxes is angry at Haman. This next scene, is, it's tragic for Haman, but it's comically absurd and the way things just go from bad to worse for Haman. Um, verse 7, But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest this queen, the queen, while she is with me in my house? Now, now what's happening here? In, in Persian culture, if you were going to ask somebody for, for mercy, it was customary to, to seize their feet. And, and Esther is, is reclining on a couch. Uh, this was the, the, the normal way to eat for Persians, Greeks, Romans, and Jews. You see this you know, even the Last Supper. That's the, you know, the Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. They're sitting up too straight. They would have been more sideways, uh, as, as they all would have been back then. So she's reclining on the couch. He's got her feet. And 
in my reading of the text, I don't, I don't imagine him attacking her in any kind of inappropriate or violent way. I just kind of see him spazzing out and falling on her. I mean, the Bible says falling um, on the couch, but he picks a really bad time to fall on the queen. Remember, this is the queen of Persia, and you don't touch the queen. You sure don't fall on her while she's reclining on a couch, and the king's already mad. So he walks in, and he sees the guy stumbling on the queen while he's trying to beg for mercy, and of course, he's not going to get any. And then... I don't know how long, how long Haman had served in the court, but evidently he didn't make very many friends because this next scene, again, just it makes me laugh a little bit. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. It was Persian custom for a king not to look on the face of a condemned man. So that's what that, that's about. Then Harbona. Now, I don't know if you remember Harbona. He was one of the king's advisors from chapter 1 who said, you need to get rid of Ashti because it's bad for all of us men in Persia. But notice he speaks up with some helpful information. Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. <laughs> he had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. So if, if, you're, if you're Haman watching this scene play, I was like, Oh, well, thanks for that helpful information. That's going to work. And the king jumps right on it. Verse 9, the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Now, it's bad for Haman, but the Jews aren't out of the woods yet, because remember, the king can't just undo his decree, so we're, that's what next two weeks are going to be about, what's going to become of the Jewish people after Haman. But this principle that Haman illustrates, it's all over the scriptures. Let's take a quick look. Psalm 916, the Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. Proverbs 26:27. if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will receive eternal life. As we learned earlier, Jesus himself said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. So what's this mean to you and me 15 or 2,500 years later? A couple things I can think of. You know, we, we keep coming back to God's timing being perfect, and we see that again and again in Esther. But justice delayed is not justice denied. Mordecai didn't get what he deserved. He didn't get the honor he deserved when he exposed the assassination plot. But he got it later, right on time, it seems. The future is not determined by fate, but by God. You know, the superstitions of the Persians, they were, they were barking up the wrong tree. You know, history is his story. And we reap what we sow, or what goes around comes around. You know, say this any way you want. You know, whatever it is that you're sowing, into your children, into your career, into your discipleship, that's going to determine what you reap. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, uh, for what you've taught us here. I thank you for such a, an interesting and entertaining story, but Lord, I ask that you'd help us to grab the, uh, the timeless truths and apply them to our lives. Lord, you know, help me not to sow uh, unkindness or selfishness or... Uh, or, or, or envy or any of those things into my uh, relationships. Lord, help me to, to sow your love. And Lord, I thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to reap harvests of blessing. Lord, help us to learn this. Help us to live it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.